Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Most of you will remember the primaries when Donald J. Trump was running against a dozen other Republican candidates for the presidential nomination, and virtually the entire pro-life movement was extraordinarily suspicious of Donald Trump's pro-life credentials. Uh, to many people, it seemed as if he had become pro-life pretty recently, that he had done so out of political convenience. And there were a lot of people running against him for the nomination that had a rock-solid pro-life record. Uh, I think most pro-life activists were divided between support of Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, both of whom made pro-life policies um, very fundamental planks in their platform, really seeking to reach out to the social conservatives in the United States and to reach out to the pro-life community in particular. And so even when several mainstream publications went hunting for pro-lifers who were willing to endorse Donald Trump, there was virtually nobody to be found on that issue. And pro-lifers are also quite used to politicians saying one thing during election time and then saying something else entirely once they take office. And so I'm not the only one uh, who was surprised when the Donald Trump administration not only kept their promises on the pro-life issue, but actually went above and beyond, both on the domestic level and then especially on the international level, where the United States has been magnificent in uh, getting language that supports abortion stricken from all sorts of different international documents and international agreements. And because that this was so surprising, and because Donald Trump's pro-life record has genuinely uh, shocked a lot of people, especially those who remember when he was a pro-choice Democrat and was went on record saying he supported things uh, like late-term abortion, it's pretty stunning to hear him describe abortion in more graphic terms than virtually any other president in American history. Uh, further to that, it actually looks like Donald Trump is going to be making late-term abortion an issue in the upcoming presidential campaign. And so to understand uh, Donald Trump better, I wanted to talk to somebody who knew him personally. And Lord Conrad Black, who recently wrote a biography of, of Trump, it's called Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other, he agreed to come on this podcast and to talk about Donald Trump from his own perspective, both as a historian and somebody who knows the president personally. So for those of you who've never heard of Lord Conrad Black, he is a Canadian-born British peer. He's the former publisher of the London Daily Telegraph, The Spectator, The Chicago Sun-Times, uh, The Jerusalem Post. He founded uh, the Canadian National Post. He's on TV and radio commenting on a wide range of issues all the time. And he's actually been one of Trump's primary defenders in the media. In addition to his biography of Trump, he's also written authoritative biographies on Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Richard Nixon, who he also knew quite well. And so Conrad Black is somebody who has a very interesting perspective on the president. He approaches the president as somebody not only who used to run in the same social circles, as Trump, but also somebody who has written biographies of presidents before. And so I asked uh, Lord Black to come on and have a conversation with us about Donald Trump. He graciously agreed, and this is that conversation. I'll start off by uh, asking the most obvious question. Uh, what made you decide to write a biography of President Donald J. Trump? Well, the truth is the publisher, Regnery, wrote to me and asked me to and made quite a generous offer. And, and I 
haven't been much impressed with most of what's been written about him. Some of the books have been better than most of the of the, of the written media comment, but um, and and there have been exceptions because when they asked me to do it, I said I would, and so I scooped up everything that was out there, and and I have to say a couple of the of the things that were put together about his entire pre-presidential career had some merit, not many, but but some, and uh, and I so I thought I was in a way filling a bit of a vacancy. I mean, he's uh, you know he he, he tends to polarized between uh, amongst those who write these things uh, people who who are extremely antagonistic and cannot explain how this guy you know graduated from high school right and and on the other side there are a few people who who are, are, are militant defenders to a fault so I was trying to you know I was just trying to explain how it is that this somewhat improbable character um at least with an improbable cv and and a, a controversial personality that was bound to offend a large number of people did become the president and and then how he conducted that office for his first year or so so one of the interesting things about your book is that you're one of the few people who actually knew donald trump who's written a book about him yes so what, how, how did that inform the process of the book? And I guess just tell our listeners, what is Donald Trump actually like based on your own experience with him? Um, not at all as uh, abrasive as he often appears in public. I, I think it, it, the public personality has been smoothed out by him quite a bit in, in the last two years. But uh, there were times early on in his presidency when I found the rather bombastic Donald Trump that you saw on television uh, hard to reconcile with the person I knew. He's a very courteous man personally, wonderful raconteur, hilarious, which you can see that. He's often quite funny in the speeches he gives. And uh, uh, but but. Generous, helpful, and and a good listener. I mean, he 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 certainly holds up his end of the conversation, but he listens to other people and doesn't interrupt them. And and uh, he's really a, a charming man, and and very optimistic. I mean, he's he's that's that's sort of the New York developer thing. You know, everything is moving up and getting better, and uh, and that and that's that's how he was. And. Uh, also, uh, I I knew that he had done a lot of polling over many years. I've, I've known him a long time, and and uh, although he, it wasn't at all as clear to me as it became in retrospect, uh, it, it undoubtedly was the case that he always had it in the back of his mind that he could promote his name and his celebrity status and and. Uh, his his status as a television uh, star and as a sports impresario in both prize fighting and wrestling, uh, which brought him into contact with the huge echelon of, of middle class and working class people in the United States that, that would be, I think, make him unique amongst people as wealthy as he is, uh, that he, he was at least curious about whether he could translate his celebrity and, into a high political office. And, uh, and of course, that's what he's done. 
So this is very interesting. If he had had uh, running for president or political office at the back of his mind for a long time, one of the things uh, that surprised a lot of people was um, how conservative at least his administration has turned out to be. Um, you've noted before in your columns and in the book that he initially, for example, went on TV to defend things like late-term abortion, but then has ended up championing a lot of pro-life policies. Do you think if he had run at a different point, he might have been a different politician or a different president? Or would you would you say that he has evolved in his views because of the fact that he's good at listening to people, as you just said? I think that... Um I, 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 look, he's he's New York, so he does what you need to get by. Uh, and you know, New York's a complicated political place. It's not like Chicago that's had the same party in office for since 1931, uh, which is what that's what says 88 years. The Democrats have governed the metropolitan area because Cook County is where you know, is, is the, is the uh, jurisdiction, and. Um, uh, in your New York, you know, you've had Republican and Democratic mayors of, in, in just in the last few in the last few years, and uh, he's changed. Donald Trump has changed official political uh, affiliation seven times in 13 years. So, between Democrat and Republican, so he he he, he was moving around. You you may recall that he was thinking of running for a third party, the so-called progressives. The, Party that the third party is always called the progressives in the U.S. Right. Uh, that's what was called the Theodore Roosevelt when he ran as a third party candidate. But the um, and he won the primaries in Michigan and California. But then he concluded quite rightly that a third party never wins in the United States. Even Theodore Roosevelt couldn't do that. And um, and 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 so he was waiting to see which party he would move in, and then he saw his chance in the Republicans. But uh, so in that sense, I think it's it's essentially a matter of convenience to him. In terms of policy, uh, he's not he's he's a strange mixture. He's liberal in some. I mean, by the traditional definitions, he's 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 not a, really a conservative in in the sense of of. Uh, trimming the welfare system or uh, being overly preoccupied with balancing the budget but but he but he is uh he is in in appointment of judges for example and and almost all judicial matters on the question of abortion he conceded that when he was first asked about a partial birth abortion he didn't know what it was although i would have thought that the just the words would imply what it was but um but he brushed up on it and i think there he was maybe a bit under the influence of his wife but but i you know i i i think he i think he look he went to a military school and his father was a wealthy man and and he he is in fact quite conservative as a family person he raised his children well they've they've all got on well they haven't embarrassed him in any way and um and uh, he just he was just but he was part of that manhattan glitzy scene he doesn't drink or anything like that but but he he always, he always liked you know he always liked the good looking women and things so he's a he's a he's a sort of a composite but politically he's always been centrist sensible he's, he's a sensible policy not a dogmatist but that makes him somewhat conservative in a lot of areas 
So how would you explain the alliance between uh, American evangelicals and the tremendous amount of voting clout that they took to the polls in favor of Trump? They voted for him in bigger numbers and they voted for for Romney or for Bush um, to this man who is is sort of, uh, you know, on the face of it, somebody who wouldn't appear to be an ally of that community. There was that sort of famous picture of of Jerry Falwell Jr. posing with Trump in his office in Trump Tower in front of a framed uh, uh, framed cover of Playboy magazine, for example. So what do you make of that alliance? Because a lot of people accuse evangelicals of being hypocrites for supporting Trump. Uh, Trump obviously isn't a particularly religious person himself and wouldn't really claim to be. So how did this alliance come about in your view? Uh, he is an upholder of the traditional American values. Uh, in, his, in his personal life, he wasn't for a long time, if you're referring to divorces and romantic affairs and so on. But in terms of taking his role as a father seriously, bringing up his children well, uh, and, and respecting religion, uh, I mean, as Mr. Churchill said of himself, he was less a pillar of the church than he was a buttress supporting it from outside. But right. I, I, I would say I would say Donald Trump is frankly more religious than a lot of presidents have been and, and uh not as not as much as the Bushes and not but just as religious as say Ronald Reagan was, who who was a divorced man once and but also was much admired by the evangelicals. So I mean I think they see him as a good president for them. He he's uh he he's you know he's comparatively opposed to abortion and he's and he's uh, he, he's certainly in favor of retention of uh, christian values within the schools for the parents who want it and that sort of thing and 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 uh, he, frankly the, the unofficial religion of the democrats is atheism and uh, you know joe biden and um, People of, of that ilk, uh, John Kerry and so on, profess to be Roman Catholics, but then say, but I don't believe in imposing my views on anybody, which is nonsense and a red herring, and no one was talking about that. Uh, Trump, Trump is, is an, un, an unwavering upholder, of, 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 at least in a contest with the Democrats, uh, of, of what any any basically any religious person of the Judeo-Christian faith would would believe in. And, uh, you know, the previous administration did a great deal to annoy uh, several of the religions, especially the Roman Catholics, with all that nonsense about requiring that all Roman Catholic designated institutions provide and pay for the birth control activities, including sterilization of students and employees. I mean, the I mean that was an outrageous thing to do, and a great many people objected to it. Well, I, they would they would know that Donald Trump is not a pious or fervent person, but they also would know that he is an upholder of, of in general, their right to do what they want to do. And uh, on the comparison you made with with Romney and the Bushes, I, 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 you're quite right. He's not as much of a practicing. Uh, a member of a faith as as those pre- as candidates and presidents were, but uh, but he's a stronger leader than they were. I mean, he he is a strong leader, and and he is uh, he is a greater political force than they than they were. When you look at at social issues like abortion, for example, The Atlantic uh, recently did a long-form profile of Ivanka. Um, he comes from the liberal New York set, although he's obviously changed his mind on a number of key issues. 
But uh, when you look at how uh, Planned Parenthood, the abortion industry in general, has responded to Donald Trump. So I, I was at the inauguration for Donald Trump on the next day. Um, I reported on the Women's March, and it was essentially hundreds of thousands of people screaming the worst obscenities you can imagine directly at the White House. Trump was viewing this. Um, you know Trump personally. Uh, I, do you think that any chance for, for example, an organization like Planned Parenthood, which gets millions in federal funding, to bridge that gap between themselves and the administration was sort of sent up in flames when they decided to preemptively declare war on him the day after his inauguration? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you know, as, as as everyone who follows him at all knows, he's not uh, he's not a turn the other cheek man. You know, I mean, right. he, he, if people declare war on him, he will exchange fire with them. I, I think there would have been some chance for Planned Parenthood to carry on receiving uh, the blessings of the government for their activities apart from abortion. I mean, that's not all they do, to be fair. But uh, you know, let's face facts. They have been responsible, or you know, involved with the, uh, with millions of abortions, and and uh, uh, and for a variety of reasons, it's not for me or I think anyone else to try and mind read here the extent to which Trump is acting on sincere principle and acting out of legitimate political tactics. Probably a combination of the two. But but um, but he. That's not, I mean, he, he is opposed to that policy, and he was bound to be opposed to them. But I think he would have been, uh, you know, capable of reaching some sort of agreement on a on a modified basis with them if they if they had not attacked him. But I mean, what person in his right mind would respond positively to people who said about them what they said about him? I mean, the slander of him was terrible in that march. I remember it too. So one of the interesting things about the way conservatism has sort of been, uh, you know, cleaved in two by the Trump administration is to look at what different people have to say about him. I, I, I did an interview uh, with, with George Will, for example, who rejects uh, Trump basically on aesthetic grounds when you boil it all the way down to it. Um, he said George that, is a friend of mine, but I'm afraid it's the same. I mean, it's a legitimate cultural abrasion, but it's also an element of snobbery. And then same thing with, I believe most of these people are are your friends or you have been friendly with for years. It's the same thing with, with people like David Frum, who was a, a big fan of George W. Bush initially. So I guess the, the, the question that I've, I've always been curious about and that a lot of people want to ask you is when it comes to yourself and, and, and Victor Hansen, um, who wrote a foreword to your book, what do you see in him as students of history that people who were traditionally on your side or at least had a, you know substantive overlap, people like George Will, David Frum, run your way down the list, the entire editorial staff of the National Review, what do you see in him that they don't see? Yeah, I, by the way, I think the National Review has... Uh has backpedaled reasonably elegantly, but quite effectively. I think they treat him as, as a publication quite fairly. Now, I was appalled at that issue that they wrote, the against Trump issue, you know, where there were right. dozens of contributors writing terrible things about him. Well, I, I, look, I, I think what they saw at the start was, in George Will's word, and which is a, the, the highest crime he can think of, a vulgarian. You know, they, I mean, he, there is that aspect to him. He does, at times, appear a crass and boorish person who has no principles and, and is probably uh, not above 
corrupt practices financially and otherwise. I mean, he sometimes gives that impression. But I, I know him, and I've had him as a business associate, and that is not an accurate description of him. And uh, and and they they were uh, for again. I, I want to be careful. I I know the I, the two that you mentioned, David from George Will. I know well, and I know most of the others quite well. You have in mind like Bill Crystal and so forth. Mm-hmm. They. I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to take liberties in mind read, but. Uh, I, I think they just could not believe that he would actually that this person that they found as as a personality, as a public personality, annoying and worrisome, would be the engine for for policies that they would actually agree with. And I, and I think they find themselves in an increasingly odd position because I I I simply do not believe. That they that they don't agree with most of what he's done. I think they do agree with it, but they they have a terrible time reconciling the policies he's pursued with a personality that defends them as a public personality. And, and I understand it up to a point, but it's their conundrum, and they they've got they've got to work their way out of it. I mean, they are just talking to themselves now. The problem is, I think that they have that they have revealed the fact that they have absolutely no political influence, and and that is bursting their own bubble, and it was a tactical error to do it, as well as being unfair to the person who won. I mean, they they must have some idea of how much uh, how much uh, more depressing, from their standpoint, American public life would be today if, if Mrs. Clinton had won. Well, I suppose that's the one thing that I find it difficult to wrap my head around is that regardless of, of, of the various accusations of corruption on Trump's part, let's say you take a lot of those at face value, the record of the Clintons is extensive and very well known and ongoing. So it doesn't seem like that trade-off would have satisfied their concerns if corruption was their primary concern. Yeah, no, I, it, it, it makes no sense to me, and I'm, I'm the wrong person to make the case for them. And I don't think uh, that they can make the case anymore. I, I mean, you, when they could still frighten people with thoughts, uh, essentially borrowing from the left and then the women's march and so on, that that he was a racist, he was a misogynist, he was a promoter of ignorance and violence and so forth. I mean, if they actually believed any of that, then, then I would understand why he wouldn't want him as president. But I never believed there was a whit of truth to any of it. He always had a a, a, a perfect record of equal opportunity, re, uh, you know, in, on, on both genders and and uh, gay people and race and religion. He never cared about any of that. He was a completely tolerant person. I mean, nobody who who gets anywhere in New York City uh, is is really seriously offside on any of those things. I mean, you just can't. That, that's a city with that that will not. I mean, you can sit in a in a, an apartment on Canal Street or something and think racist and misogynist thoughts to yourself. But if you're going to be out doing business and getting things done and getting zoning clearances from the city and that sort of thing, as Trump did for decades, you you simply can't have those views. And he never did have them. And that's not how he was raised. He was raised in a in a very moral, tolerant family. He went to a Catholic university, though he's not Catholic. He went to uh, you know to uh, the Marble Church, famous Church of Norman Vincent Peale, and and he, he's he's never had a bad record in any of those respects. 
So you said that in many cases it's it's correct to describe Trump as a vulgarian, and of course we've seen these tell-all books come out. Uh, Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, Bob Woodward's yeah, but he, Fear. Michael Wolff is a disgrace. He's an outrage. He couldn't lie straight in bed, and he's never written an honest word in his life. <laughs> and he can't write apart from that. And looking at Bob Woodward's... Well, he's almost as bad. I mean, he's not as bad as Michael Wolff. He's the greatest myth-maker in American history. But even he has flaked off and, and warned the Democrats that this this business of spying on the Trump campaign is not to be taken lightly. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you, I, uh, but the... No, well, you, you, you answered you the question. Red flags in front of me. Yeah, you you <laughs> you answered the question I was about to ask, which is these accounts, which are basically being treated as as the definitive accounts of what's going on inside the Trump administration. And I was going to ask you, what's your take on on the? They basically describe a sort of chaotic dumpster fire inside the Trump administration that stretches on from day to day. The New York Times more or less says the same thing. And I was going to ask you if you considered that to be accurate, but it sounds like I got my answer. Well, yeah, I think I think you can see from the way the government works. I mean, they are like the way Trump does things is a is a slightly harem scarer method. He, you know, the subtitle of my book is a president like no other. He's not he's not someone who focuses precisely or or with any particular interest on the exact method of organization of something, but. He was a very efficient businessman. He ran a tight ship. He didn't waste money. Uh, decisions were made promptly and executed crisply and professionally. And I and I, I think if that were not the case in the administration, uh, they they would not succeed as much as they have in in the in the things they've undertaken. I mean, Lighthizer is an undoubted trade expert. They've made a lot of progress on trade treaties and the most uh, important negotiation of all. With China, uh, we'll have to see how it turns out. But certainly, each step has been carefully considered, and 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 it's all part of a pattern. Uh, the, the the dealing with North Korea, it appeared to be uh, just uh, rhetorical exchanges and name calling and so forth. But there was a method to it. There was a goal, and there is progress. I mean, he, he the fact is at the beginning because there was so much disloyalty among the holdover people. They were leaking whole conversations that he had with foreign leaders and things like this. It, 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 what they want, they tried to create chaos and then accuse him of being the author of chaos and therefore unfit uh, to be president and, and even a candidate for uh, the 25th Amendment on the basis that he was mentally incompetent. They were just trying to create a situation to destroy his presidency. All of that has stopped, and and uh, Woodward's comments are nonsense. I mean, it, it may well be, and probably is, a, a slightly shaggier way of running things than, than than most previous presidents have had. But it's effective. I, I mean, he's been there for uh, almost as long as uh, Warren Harding and Gerald Ford. And it's, if he, if, I mean, heaven forbid that this would happen, but if he if he was incapacitated or died today, uh, he would be judged, I think, quite clearly a successful president. So when you look at the the campaigns against Trump for the last several years, and there's a case to be made that the uh, the Republicans did the same thing to, to Bill Clinton with the Star Report, um, do you think that it's damaged his presidency, this sort of death-by-a-thousand-cuts um, approach to trying to take his administration down? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's retarded its progress, but it's failed. And uh, you see, I, I think you have to you have to take the, the, the longer term view here. He he set out the famous day uh, almost 
three years, uh, almost four years ago, when he came down the escalator uh, at, at Trump Tower, he, he basically w- was attacking the entire system, all factions of both parties. He was attacking the Bushes as much as uh, the Clintons and Obama, and and he was attacking Hollywood, Wall Street, the national political media, the the, the lobbyist system, the campaign financing system, all of it. And um, and uh, it was considered to be nonsense at the beginning, and then and then gradually it became obvious he was likely to win the nomination. Then it was almost universally thought impossible for, the, for him to win, and then he did win. And then for the first six months, the Republican leaders in the Congress sat on their hands waiting to see if he'd be impeached or not. And now, in the only truthful words I ever heard from Senator Flake, it's, it's the president's party now. He's got the Republicans in the Congress right behind him. And, he, I mean, he's just gradually achieving his goals. And it, it, he, it was a kind of a revolution, and revolutions in democratic countries don't don't happen by rolling tanks out of the lawn of where the president lives. You have to do it according to a democratic process. But he, he, he's moving steadily forward, and he's rising in the polls, too. And, and some of the frenzied media opposition to him is starting to crack a bit. I, I see even Jake Tapper was... Uh, at CNN was incredulous about uh, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, not giving him any credit for the state of the economy. And uh, you mentioned Bob Woodward. I mean, he 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 did. He is warning the Republicans to be careful of this whole uh, of this. I'm sorry, the Democrats to be careful of this vulnerability they've got on on uh, the previous administration conducting surveillance on the Trump campaign. I mean, all of that. Is going, is going to blow up. I mean, it, it is obvious that a number of those people are very legally vulnerable, and it, it is against that backdrop that the next election campaign will unfold. So looking at it from a historical perspective, then, uh, you said he went to war with the establishment, and he obviously won. He's the president of the United States. Do you think that he's going to be a blip, or do you think that, for example, if 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 um, the people who voted for him perceive him as not having delivered what he promised, uh, that what's going to happen is the pendulum is going to swing far left, and one of the sort of crazies on offer currently by the Democratic Party might end up uh, achieving office as sort of the the progressive populist version of what Donald Trump was, especially considering Bernie Sanders' numbers both last time around and his current numbers this time around. No, I think exactly the opposite. I think he's going to be judged a very successful president on his first term. He has, he will have delivered. He delivered on the tax side. He's delivered on the economy, the patriation of overseas profits and jobs. He's 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 delivering on immigration. It's been a a, a tremendous struggle. The Democrats have tried to pretend there was no problem there. A wall is immoral. Immoral, said the speaker. Pelosi, uh, it's a fake uh, crisis invented by the president and so forth. All of that has gone uh, over the side, and the uh, I think he has delivered very well for his followers, and he's now starting to encroach on that relatively small group that, that would be counted a floating vote. Uh, I mean, I think basically 40% of the people are for him, and 40% really seriously dislike him. But that other 20% is up for grabs, and I think he's going to end up taking most of it. And, and he's inching up now in the polls. And, and I think it's relatively easy for him now to uh, to uh, 
demonstrate that those accusing him of being a boor and an embarrassment and so on are, are, are simply not accurate, that he's actually quite presentable in that office and, and, and looks and sounds like a president most of the time, uh, more than many of his predecessors have done. And, um, and, uh, and I think that the Democrats are going to have to decide whether to go with an old meritorious wheel horse who will run an, uh, an honorable race but lose, like Biden, or, or really go for a walk on the wild side like they did with McGovern in 72, where the Republicans did with Goldwater in 64, and take a terrible beating at the polls, but get that out of their systems so they can bounce back as a centrist party in the next election. And, and indeed, after in, in 1968, having been horribly defeated in 64, the Republicans won, and the same happened with the Democrats in 76 after the after the tremendous defeat of, uh, of McGovern in 72. So, I mean, the country seems to be in the pattern of changing after each two terms, but uh, the chances of defeating this president next year are not good. But they, they, the Democrats will do a lot better with somebody like Biden. But on the other hand, if they're going to lose anyway. They might as well, they, many of them might think, well, let's really try something exotic here. And, and and teach all these young lefties coming up this isn't the way to get elected. Then they'll learn the lesson and run a centrist after that. I, I mean, who am I to speak for the Democratic Party? But on my prediction, though, Trump will be reelected. And so I'm getting from your analysis that Joe Biden would be the most likely to pose a serious threat to Trump of of everybody on offer at the moment. Well, I, I think he'd I think he'd run ahead of the other candidates. The one who actually strikes me as relatively sensible and not as sort of tired and old hat as Biden, is Klobuchar. I mean, she doesn't seem to be uh, cranky like, uh, you know, uh, you know the utter nonsense that Harris and O'Rourke and Warren and these people say. I mean, ne- never mind the, 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 you know, the really far-out ones like Swalwell and so on. But, um, uh, but Klobuchar has no pizzazz. She doesn't seem to be catching on. But uh, but the, but Biden, you know, look, he, he's he's a, he's an amiable, good old boy. But I mean, he's not a president. The country doesn't want Joe Biden as president. Final question would be: uh, What would you add to your book now? A couple of years now onwards, uh, you know, you've gotten to see Trump's presidency unfold. What would you uh, add to the book that's either contributed to or subtracted from your initial thesis? I, just more of an update, I think, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I I don't want to sound patronizing, but he's like all of us. I mean, the longer you do a job, the better you get at it. You know, right. he's growing into it. You see, and I and I, by the way, we, I, I think we are going to do a reprint coming up closer to the election, and uh, and and he's he's just got a fuller he's got a fuller record. I had to I had to close that one off after he'd been president for just over a year, and now we're more than a year beyond that. And but in that time, you know, you've seen. You, 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 you've really seen the immigration issue and the southern border issue tackled definitively. It was, it was just maneuvering around at that time. Well, Lord Black, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. No, thank you for having me. I, I, I'm grateful to you for, for, for calling.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Conrad Black, the author of the biography of Donald Trump called Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you want to check out previous conversations on the Van Maren Show, head over to LifeSiteNews.com, where you can find our past conversations, our past interviews, as well as finding a host of both opinion commentary as well as news on pro-life and pro-family issues. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us all again next week for another enlightening conversation.